if we're talking about a, a sexual romantic relationship, heterosexuality is not the norm. It's marriage. So we want to be specific, faithfulness in marriage, chastity and singleness. And so that then gives this really deep theological foundation for uh, this goodness that we are called to, uh, that's much more precise, that calls us to be set free from these secular categories that don't point us. So it's, yeah, it's not, it's not uh, moral, normal, meaning there's a lot of normal things out there. I mean, if we're honest, um, sin is pretty normal. <laughs> um, heterosexual sin is pretty normal, but that's not moral. Um, actually, it's kind of abnormal, if you will, or it's it's actually much in the minority to live holy lives. So let's not seek to be normal, but let's seek to be holy. <laughs> Well, Dr. Christopher Yuan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. So you are an author of several books, a frequent speaker on the topic of biblical sexuality and the gospel. And more recently, you've produced a video series called The Holy Sexuality Project. And this yep. is designed to help parents and grandparents empower their teens to understand, embrace, and celebrate biblical sexuality. So we're going to be talking about many of those themes over the next 45 minutes to an hour. But for listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you tell us a mm -hmm. bit of your backstory and your journey? Specifically, what's led you to give yourself to the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I wrestled with my sexuality. I came out of the closet, as I would have said then, in my early 20s. I'm originally from Chicago. I was going to dental school at that time in Louisville, Kentucky. Came out, broke the news to my parents. Amazingly, my mother came to face faith first, and then my father did. I went the total opposite direction, and I began living in the world. I was partying. I was doing drugs. I was selling drugs. I was ex then expelled from dental school just three months before I was received my doctorate. And then I moved from Louisville to Atlanta, Georgia, and I kept doing what I knew how to do best, which is just give into my flesh. Uh, I was partying. I was not only doing drugs, not only selling drugs, but supplying drugs. And um, so... Uh, this whole time, my parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. They tried to reach out to me, love of Christ. I wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, my parents came to visit me one time in Atlanta, kicked them out. My dad gave me his Bible before he left, and I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. Gave it to me anyway, left on, left on my kitchen counter, and as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and threw it in the trash. That's how much I despised God and this book, the Bible. And it was just obvious to my parents that I was hopeless, but they committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. She fasted every Monday for seven years, once fasted 39 days on my behalf. So that miracle came with a bang on my door, opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dog, dogs. Um, I just received a large amount of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated my money, my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. 
So I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison, found myself in jail. A few days after that, I was walking around the cell block and I passed by this garbage can and I saw something on top of the trash, bent over, picked it up. It was a Gideon's New Testament. Took it back to my cell, began reading it. And at first I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm, this is not the answer. I just thought I've got tons of time on my hands. <laughs> so I began to read it and it began to convict me. I thought, this is not good news. Well, things got worse. I was called to the nurse's office and I got the news that I was HIV positive. So a few days after that, I was laying in my cell and just thought I've just destroyed my life. Someone had scribbled something on the bunk above me and it said, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I mean, there could have been any verse, but God used those words written by a prophet thousands of years ago to Judah to tell Judah that if God could have a plan for Judah in rebellion and exile, he could even have a plan for me. I didn't know where that plan was going to take me, but he gave me enough faith and enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols, obviously drugs. Within a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing in mind other idols, and I was holding on to what I thought something that I couldn't let go of, my sexuality. Went to a chaplain, and he actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality, gave me a book. And I thought, great, now I have biblical justification. I have read that book in one hand, the Bible in the other. And it was the Holy Spirit that convicted me that those assertions were a clear distortion of God and his word. Gave the book back to his chaplain, and I just turned to the Bible alone. Went through every verse, every chapter, looking for justification, couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point, either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. Hmm. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. The days and the weeks and months of abstinence passed, I realized my sexuality shouldn't be the core of who I am. I needed to, uh, that my identity is not gay, ex-gay, or even heterosexuality, but my identity need to be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. We know that's true, right? But, you know, before I became a Christian, I thought to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So heterosexuality, it's the right direction. It's not the right goal. And God doesn't command us be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. Mm -hmm. Neither did he say be homosexual for I am homosexual. They're both the wrong secular Freudian categories. Instead, God used the biblical framework, be holy for I am holy. Mm -hmm. Thus, the opposite of homosexuality isn't heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. So God called me while I was in prison also to ministry. And um, I was called to then apply to Bible college. I went right from prison to Bible college. I graduated, went on to my master's and then my, my in exegesis and then my doctorate um, in 2014. And then I wrote my book with my mom out of our country. And then back in 2018, end of 2018, I wrote this book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, which you read 
And then I adapted that book, which is really for adults, into a video series for parents and teens. It's kind of a one of its kind because the majority of resources out there now are specifically for like youth group. And the mm. parents are kind of an afterthought mm. or for the Christian school. But better than the Christian classroom, we need to be talking about sexuality in the living room, in the family mm. room, in the dining room. But it's not occurring. It's not happening. So this is one of the first of its kind to actually break down that paradigm, tear down that wall, separating parents and their teens from talking in gospel centered ways about sexuality so that we can really stem the tide. Yeah, I came across your work. We were talking just a little bit before we started recording, but I came across your work earlier this year, late last year, as mm. part of the Colson Fellows Program, which we've talked about before on the podcast. But there's a lot of reading in that mm. eight, nine-month uh, fellowship. One of the books was Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, which was written by you. And as I shared with you before we started recording, I think it it has been one of the most helpful books for me in mm. just thinking through this whole topic of sexuality, identity, homosexuality, holy sexuality. That was kind of a new, a new phrase for me. I, I want to come back to the Holy Sexuality Project, um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about your relationship with your parents, because obviously mm. that's been significant in your life. Did that, is that part of what influenced you to create this video series, The Holy Sexuality Project? Yeah. So, uh, my dad, he's now with the Lord and he was my biggest cheerleader. Um, he had such a passion, not only for Christ, but also to let people know about Jesus. He had also an enormous burden for this younger generation. He was just seeing all the confusion. We have this great ministry. It's my mom and I now, but it was before it was just my parents and I, we had a two generational ministry, which is so cool. And we were ministering almost mostly to parents. I mean, we do so much when we ever we speak we get actually several uh, colston fellows that come we were just uh, in another state uh, ministering in colorado and there was a handful of colston fellows that came to, they weren't even at that church and they came to here but we get i think it was like two dozen uh, you know parents that came and they were just so broken feeling hopeless and we really want to provide that so my dad uh, has such a burden for this younger generation and he wanted so desperately to have this resource out like three years ago and so we're just really happy that now it's it's finally come to fruition and uh so yeah they were a big part of getting this resource out there they actually funded this this was um we actually got a whole bunch of proposals and this was <laughs> many of the, the majority of them were 1.1 1.2 1.2 it's a million that's a 1.2 million dollar project essentially mm -hmm. fortunately we were we did not pay that we were able to pay just you know like half of that which is still a good significant amount and the reason is because i mean videos are not only expensive but when you want to do high quality videos along with animation it's very very um it, it, it's 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 very costly and uh, it takes a lot of extra work, but we want to give um, not only our best to God, but we want to keep the kids engaged. They're able to kind of spot really cheesy illustrations and animations, and we don't want to turn them off because this is one of the most important messages right now. When it comes to biblical sexuality, kids are being turned away and they don't, they're giving the wrong message. And so instead of calling them to like a secular category, we want to call them to Jesus. We want to call them to holiness. Well, this, this Holy Sexuality Project series of videos, it is designed for teenagers. Am I right on that? Yes. 
Yeah, teenagers and parents to go together. So we're actually encouraging churches because uh, oftentimes this is the response I get. They're like, oh, great. Uh, you know, I, I just let my youth pastor know. Great. That, mm. That's good. But we are actually trying to downplay that. We're almost a little bit trying to discourage mm. uh, churches to show it to youth group. And here's the reason why. Because when we do that, that lets parents think they're off the hook. Oh, good. Uh, the youth pastor's talking about, you know, sex. Whew, I don't need to talk about it. <laughs> well, youth pastor should do it once a year or whatever it is. But is once a year better? Is, is once a year going to stem the tide when they're getting it, the messages daily? And another thing is, as good as a job as a youth pastor is doing to disciple your kids, a youth pastor does not replace the parent. And that's key. The world, I mean, like, you know, even in politics, we're, we're seeing uh, politicians that are just blatantly saying, hmm. you know, parents, you know, the school replaces the parent and, you know, we don't want parents to be involved in education and which is crazy, you know, because <laughs> right. yeah, the, the schools have our kids eight hours a day, five days hmm. a week, and they don't want parents to be involved. That's, that's pure insanity, which to me should I feel like we should just burn all the public school. Well, maybe not burn. Maybe just, um, just you know, uh, I don't know. Another adjective. Close, just shut them down. <laughs> no, but and there's a lot of good, and we need to be proactive in that. But it's. I feel like so many are just so far gone. I don't know. I mean, it really, God is able and he can turn that around. But in this moment, when people and maybe you're a parent right now, if you are at this kind of I don't know, should I, you know, homeschool? Should, should I not? Uh, you know, I, I don't have kids, so I, I don't know all the major sacrifices that, that need to go into this. But there are a lot of co-ops that are making the homeschooling much, much more reasonable. But I used to say homeschooling is a good option. I don't say that anymore. I really feel like it's become a necessity. Are mm. we willing, in, when they're in pre-K, they are reading cook kids books on transgenderism and it may be as innocuous as a crayon there's a there's a book called i think it's called red or blue it's a it's a transgender crayon um and they're hmm. reading it it's required reading in hmm. many kindergartens mm -hmm. and men are pre-k so they're already starting this it's it's a story about a crayon that that's red but has a blue blue wrapping. What what is that? Hmm. That's that's totally gender ideology. Hmm. So I just don't do you want to spend most of your time doing damage control or do you want to spend all your time on pointing people to Jesus and not doing damage control and actually filling our kids' minds with the goodness of God, with the stories of Jesus and how we are all in need of Christ, not just spending almost all your time trying to do damage control. So yes, this book is specifically not just a program, not just something to show to youth, you know, your youth group. What is much better than that is actually maybe churches get get parents together, groups of parents together, uh, and then uh, they feel confident and grandparents together to go through the the video series, and then once they're confident. They go home into their own homes and go through it with their kids to have these conversations. Here's a really cool story. Just last month, we got a, a, an email from a pastor who had two kids 
junior in high school, his daughter, and then a freshman in high school, his son. And he heard that our video series was just coming out at the end of June and he got it in the beginning of July. And he said, school's starting soon. And he says, I, we must go through this before school starts because they were in, they were in a Christian school, but it was so secular. He was like, it's just as bad as the public schools, which is kind of sad anymore. But he said he, he has to go through it. So they went through all 12 lessons. It's meant to, you know, to do either once, once a week for 12 weeks, which is kind of long, but you could, I think, you know, twice a week for six weeks is, is really good, doable, even better if you can, because that, that the, the more that you can kind of get it all in quicker, um, maybe, you know, this pastor, he did it, uh, in two weeks, he did one every hmm. day. I think maybe they took the Sunday off and he did it in 12 days, two weeks, the first lesson, which is my testimony, where I kind of build that foundation on it's really Christocentric, um, like, and it's kind of, um, it's almost like a catechism. There's a question, answer, question, answer. You know how the, for centuries, the church uses catechism to teach kids. There's a question and then an answer. Who is God, et cetera. You know, what's our, what is our, um, you know, what is, uh, I'm totally blinking now, uh, Westminster, you know, what, what is the ultimate, what is the end of, you know, ultimate goal, end of, you know, man, the, the end of man is to glorify God and to join, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. And so um, I kind of use that, which is, well, what's the ultimate goal when it comes to sexuality? This is lesson one. The question is the ultimate goal to sexuality is to glorify God. How? By denying yourself, taking your cross, t- taking up your cross and following Jesus. But after lesson one, the, uh, at the end, this 14 year old son told his dad, he said, dad, this is so weird. So <laughs> awkward. I'm talking to my parents about sex, right? I bet you all your listeners and watchers are like, yep, that would be me as a parent <laughs> or me as a grandparent. Totally. I get that. At the end of lesson 12, Andrew, this is so cool. The, this pastor, dad, told his, asked his son, said, so do you still feel weird and awkward talking to your parents about sex? Because it was him and his wife and his two kids going through this together. Like, what a great time to redeem that, you know, as a family. And they were having great conversations. At the end, he asked his son, so do you still feel awkward? The son said, no, dad, not at all. Hmm. That's a win. Like essentially that we just tore down that wall of insecurity, of awkwardness, of embarrassment that is right now between parent and child, grandparent Mm. and grandchild. And they're not talking. But guess what? Your teen feels totally comfortable talking to their peers, totally comfortable getting online in a chat room, totally comfortable talking to their teacher or a school counselor. Please don't talk to the school counselors because they will tell you the wrong information or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We want kids, preteens and te- teens, even grade school kids to feel comfortable to have those conversations at home. So um, that's the goal. And mm. and we're just super excited about this. Well, I think we've all seen that, that I, I think as parents, you know, I, I'm a parent of four children and they're, mm. they range in age now from late twenties to, to late teens. But we've all seen as parents that these topics that, you know, we would like to address them with our children and, mm. For many of us, we we want to address them perhaps later in the the, the child re- raising process. But what we're seeing is that culturally, and certainly like you said in our school systems, that this this message, which you could say unholy sexuality, is is so prevalent that 
um, having a, a resource like what you guys have created, I think is going to help a lot of parents and uh, grandparents connect with their teens and begin to have these conversations because the topics and, and those questions and I guess the, the opposing side is out there so strongly. I mean, um, we, we have all seen it, especially over the past year and a half, two years, there's just been a, a big uptick in this conversation. So, but you know, I, I, I do want to build around, I, I want to have some conversation, uh, have a conversation around some of the themes that you write about in your book, because I know that that, yeah. that is really infused this video series that you guys have That's put right. together. So let me, let me just read, uh, Rosaria Butterfield describes your book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Mm. She says, quote, it's the most important humanly composed book hmm. about biblical sexuality and godly living for our times, end quote. I would say it's a must read for any serious Christian today. Hmm. So let's start with the idea of holy sexuality as normative. And I, mm. I want you to share with us what you mean by holy sexuality, but let me read a few quotes from your book first and then, right. and then have you respond. So you write, quote, by broadly affirming heterosexuality, we also, whether inadvertently or not, endorse heterosexual sin. The biblical opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, that's not the ultimate goal. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. So, end quote. So what is lost when we think about and navigate sexuality using these man-made categories such as heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual? What do we lose when we allow that to define our understanding? Yeah, Andrew, that's exactly right. These are man-made categories we don't find in the Bible. And I know that argument that is not found in the Bible is not enough because the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Is the concept found in the Bible? Of course, the concept of Trinity is found in the Bible. But is the concept that simply having opposite sex attractions or desires or even sexual activity in general or in a really broad sense with no uh, restriction is the standard no and the reason and this is the concept of holy sexuality really grew out of my frustration while i was in prison um that i was just okay i, I don't find where heterosexuality is the goal because there's so many just going through from old testament to the new testament so many times where you see heterosexual sin and it's called out um you know, the word porneia uh in greek where of course now we get the word pornography that word porneia just means sexual immorality that encompasses a lot of heterosexual sin it also does in, encompass all forms of heterosexuality uh, I'm, I'm sorry all forms of homosexuality the desires and the behaviors so we need to be we need to see my goodness God is calling us to something very, very specific, not just broad and general. And so I'm very much kind of a categorical type of guy, and I like to be as precise as possible. When I speak, I, I'm very particular and specific about the words that I use because I don't want to confuse. And even though I know, I mean, I, I'm still probably, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. And so I'm, I, you know, I, but I try my best to be as specific and clear as possible. So if I just broadly use, and as Christians, as we, if we just broadly use this term heterosexuality, well, first, that includes sinful behavior. Yes, certainly. Marriage between a man and a woman, that's one form of heterosexuality, but it's not representative of all. And um, 
you know, heterosexual heterosexuality is not equivalent to marriage between a man and a woman. My issue with heterosexuality is not that it is fully wrong. It's just not fully right. So holy sexuality. So I was like, okay, let's just start over. Let's not use any kind of secular terms. Let's not use, rely on Freud because Freud is the one that really popularized who he's just so infatuated with sex. Why do we want to categorize humanity according to our sexual desires or absence of desires or anything like that? That's not God's intent. Let's just start over and let's read scripture and see what scripture says. From Genesis to Revelation, there's actually only two paths that God lays out for us when it comes to sexuality, and it's dependent on our condition of relationship, whether we are single or whether we're married. So when we are single, we all start out single, and actually Matthew 22 even says we will all end up single. How will we, shall we live? We will be sexually abstinent. The other path is if you're no longer single and you are married, and when I say b- marriage, I'm using the biblical definitions, not the state's definition, which is a distortion of that. It's the definition that Jesus reiterates. People like to say Jesus was silent, not true. Mm-hmm. Matthew 19, Mark 10, he gives the definition for marriage when he was defending uh, and explaining why divorce is wrong. He said, the creator made the male and female and the two shall become one flesh. Male and female, two shall become one flesh. He was schooling them not only on divorce, but also schooling them on the definition of marriage. So when people have an issue with marriage, they got to take it up with Jesus. It's really, this isn't a matter related with Jesus. It's not a tangential agree to, dis- agree to disagree issue. So holy sexuality, it's, so, uh, you know, if a person marries, they are called, they will be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So holy sexuality, two paths, chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. If we just say heterosexuality, another thing is that mm-hmm. it says nothing about how singles ought to live, it says nothing about chastity and singleness. So this is why this is the most complete, full or deep understanding of sexuality, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. The term I know is new. Like even you, Andrew, you're like, I haven't heard this term before because I no one, <laughs> no one came up. I, I, I kind of just coined the term, but I, I always want to remind people the term might be new. The concepts are not. They just essentially come right out of the pages of scripture very easily. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. I feel like I didn't really come up with anything new. It's just, I mean, I shouldn't come up with anything new. It's just explaining what God's word says. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I really appreciated. You say at the outset of your book in the first chapter that your goal was to provide the theological framework to help mm-hmm. us think through issues of sexuality in particular, but then also to provide some practical guidance on how to help those that we love and that we know, or perhaps we ourselves are struggling with um, what we could say the distortions that sin brings into our lives, one of which is same-sex attraction or homosexual behavior. But as you point out, you know, sin brings a lot of brokenness and distortion yeah. into our lives, certainly in the mm-hmm. area of sexu- uh, sexuality and in sexual behavior. So I, I really appreciated how you really start the book. And I would say, I mean, obviously I've got you here so you can correct this, but uh, the first half of the book at least mm-hmm. is really setting the the theological framework uh, to help us go back, like you said, to push back through even um, maybe beliefs and 
and uh, biases that we see in the church itself and how the church has communicated about these That's ideas right. of, of sex to go all the way back to the scripture and, and really go all the way back to Genesis and creation to discern what is it that we can learn about how God designed sexuality and, and what is the normative sexuality that, that we should be aiming for and aspiring to. And that's really where this idea of holy sexuality comes in, is that we don't want to start, stop short of that. We, so for instance, we don't want to say that heterosexuality is normative because that, that isn't, that doesn't go far enough because as you, mm. you point out, there are, there are many ways that we can sin and be unholy in our sexuality um, as, as heterosexual people. And yeah. even as, as married, even within marriage, you know, you, you talk a lot about marriage and singleness, which I, I do want to get to here in our conversation, but even if we are living in a monogamous marriage with a member of the opposite sex, that still does not guarantee that we are practicing holy sexuality, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, there's a, a statement that I said in the book where I said, normal isn't moral. So, and, and I do mm -hmm. want to clarify, yes, most people are in heterosexual relationships, but they are not necessarily moral. In other words, they could be co cohabitating. They could be a woman's, you know, maybe in, in a series of seven men, just like yeah, uh, the Samaritan right. woman. Those are all sinful. So my point is heterosexuality, it's too broad. says nothing about how singles ought to live, chastity and singleness, because a person is single like this, the Samaritan woman, she was not married. She should not be in, in a sexual relationship um, with a person that's not her husband, <laughs> obviously. Um, but, uh, but heterosexuality, it's not God. If we're talking about a, a sexual romantic relationship, heterosexuality is not the norm. It's marriage. So we want right. to be specific faithfulness in marriage, chastity and singleness. And so that then gives this really deep theological foundation for, uh, this goodness that we are called to, uh, that's much more precise, that calls us to be set free from these secular categories that don't point us. So it's, yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, moral, normal, meaning, there's a lot of normal things out there. I mean, if we're honest, um, sin is pretty normal. <laughs> um, heterosexual sin is pretty normal, Very but normal. that's not moral. Um, oh. Actually, it's kind of abnormal, if you will, or it's it's actually much in the minority to live holy <laughs> lives. So let's not seek to be normal, but let's seek to be holy. Yeah, and God created us as sexed beings. But yes. our, our sexuality is not the basis for our personhood or our identity. You do a great job of breaking that down in the book as well. Y you know, you mentioned uh, marriage, singleness, and this is another area where I thought your book was was such a gift to God's people. You, mm. you spend quite a bit of time talking about marriage, singleness, but also the church. And so maybe mm. for the balance of our time, uh, the church as family in particular. Mm. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into that. Um, again, I'd like to read a few excerpts from your book on the topics yeah. of marriage and singleness, and then just have you elaborate on, on these themes. Uh, you write, quote, many evangelicals are passionate about defending the sanctity of marriage, yet few can articulate a robust theology <laughs> of marriage. And then a little later, you write, we shouldn't think about singleness as a temporary state before marriage. Rather, marriage is the temporary state before eternity. And 
That's the end of that quote. You go on to point out that the two most prominent figures in the New Testament, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, were single. So let me ask you, what are we as the church in 2023, especially here in the West, what are we getting wrong when it comes to these topics of marriage and singleness? Yeah. Um, oh, there's so much great stuff to unpack. And, and I just love how you were like uh, caught some of the things that, you know, because there's so much, you know, 200 pages that um, there are things that I view as really key, but they're in paragraphs and pages. So like you caught that sexed, because uh, I, I think when we say sexual, that gives a sense I have to have sex, but we are sexed male and female. And you also caught without me saying, yes, my book was two thirds almost of just good solid doctrine, because I think good theology is the most practical theology that leads to the last third. It's kind of like Paul's book sometimes, the first half or first First two thirds is good doctrine because you have to have orthodoxy must always precede orthopraxy. So many pastors and Christians want to jump to the practical when they have no foundation. You try to do right without thinking right, you end up doing wrong. So marriage and singleness, um, you know, this wasn't, I, I didn't explain this in my book, but um, uh, Andrew, initially I was thinking I'll write one chapter on marriage and one chapter on singleness. Those two chapters ended up to be so big that my publisher said, you got to break them up. And so that's why, and, and that was actually perfect because in the heart of my book, 20 chapters, chapters 10, 11 on marriage, 12 and 13 on singleness, that is kind of like at the heart of the book. You can't, um, have a book on sexuality without really emphasizing a theology of marriage and a theology of singleness. Mm. And I didn't want it to be like any other books because so, so many books are written on marriage and I'm not even married, which is crazy. <laughs> I'm writing like on marriage and I'm not even married, but I can talk about what the Bible says about marriage and what it is and what is is, is not. And I feel like I kind of had this unique perspective as a single man kind of thrown into the church world, mm. uh, getting culture shock when I saw what was going on in the church. Because I went right from prison to Moody, as I said in my testimony, at Moody Bridal Institute. I don't know if you ever heard that before. No, no, I <laughs> Moody <have> not. Bridal, <laughs> uh, not Bible, Moody Bridal Institute. So there's this huge subculture of just, I felt like we were risk at risk of idolizing marriage. So some of my points was, first... Marriage is not an idol. It's good, but it's not an idol. Second, it's not the cure to loneliness. We often are like, oh, I'm so lonely. I, you know, I'm going to get married. Well, you bring loneliness before marriage kind of often leads to loneliness and discontentment in marriage. So we need to just be really clear. I, I taught my students at Moody Bridal Institute, before you become one, be whole. In other words, before you become one in marriage, be whole in Christ. Your spouse does not complete you. No matter what Tom Cruise says or whatever that movie <laughs> is, you, know, you completely know Jesus completes us, right? I mean, if you think your spouse is going to complete you, that's putting way too much pressure on your, on your spouse or even your future spouse. So that's one thing. Also, then what is marriage? I, I need to say that's what it is not. Then what is it? Well, marriage, ultimately, I mean, it's the two becoming one. It's one flesh union. Uh, I also, I, I see, and I talk a little bit about this. Um, I can't remember if it was later in the book or whatever, but I talk about how also um, uh, sex and marriage. Oh, I talk about it in the video series. I, mm. That was one of the sections I needed to take out of the book. But I talk about how sex and marriage Actually, I view that as a sign of the covenant. A covenant. Marriage is not a, a, a right. 
It's a covenant between two people. And I saw sex and marriage, like what's the sign of the covenant? Throughout scripture, there's signs of the covenant, um, the rainbow, um, uh, the blood on, you know, the doorposts. And then the new covenants, the blood and the, uh, uh, you know, the wine and the, and the bread, the bread and the wine. Um, but uh, I think marriage as a, is a covenant. What's a sign of the covenant? I actually think that sex, yeah. the two becoming one, that one flesh can be viewed as a sign of the covenant. So every time that husband and wife come together in union in that of, of being intimate, becoming one flesh physically, emotionally, that's a sign of reconfirming the covenant you have made to one another. Um, but ultimately, mm-hmm. and I make this point um, in the book and in the video series, marriage Earthly marriage is really just a shadow. And I get this actually right from John Piper's Momentary Marriage, which is a great book. And also Keller's book on marriage is fantastic as well. Um, But marriage, earthly marriage, man and a woman, is just temporary. Hmm. Take, for example, my mom and my dad. My dad, who's with the Lord, um, we miss him daily. And my mom misses him so much. um, Their marriage is just temporary. Hmm. And I praise the Lord. You know, my dad is in glory. And... Um, that's going to be all of us one day. Um, but their marriage was fulfilled. Isn't that cool? Like mm-hmm. it's, it was fulfilled. Why? Because it's just a shadow. It's a mystery as Paul talks about in Ephesians mm-hmm. five of mm-hmm. what the eternal reality of Christ in the church, like everything needs to be Christocentric pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ, including our, our messages on biblical sexuality. A lot of times these books and resources and and messages on sexuality end up being all about human effort, man-centered, what I need to do, I need to not do this, and, you know, just abstinence, which is important, but that's, it can't be just God's no, or it's be nicer, like these newer kind of source, you know, kind of series that are out there that even say that they're Christian are like just all stories, and then all, you know, it's little about just, it almost gives this person, just be nicer, just love. Like, do we just love? Hmm. See, that's the issue. When uh, my issue, my problem is not the love part. My problem is the just. We hmm. do not just love. Hmm. We love people to Christ. See, it has, it has to be Christocentric because if we take Christ out, if I took Christ out of any hmm. of my messages in my books or in my video series, I'm saying nothing. I'm saying nothing. We have to point people to Christ. And so not only in the concept of marriage, does that actually point to Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, but also singleness. Um, uh, understanding what it is not and what it is was so helpful. And ha- actually having a Christocentric understanding of singleness as well, reminding ourselves, Jesus Christ was single on earth and fully human. Right. And um, Paul right, m- wrote most of the New Testament. He was single. Um, he was not married. Uh, so that's really helpful to understand the radical nature of even being single in a world that uh, just idolizes marriage. My singleness. And and by the way, for your listeners and watchers, I'm not promoting a this false concept of a lifelong vocation of singleness. That's actually not biblical. Mm. Um, I, don't, I never use the word celibacy. Uh, even though celibacy and chastity sometimes are synonymous... At least in this conversation right now on sexuality and sexual identity, celibacy has become a different meaning that is now this false mm. vocation of being single. So uh, 
people even say that I'm, that I'm a gay Christian. I'm not saying this. Someone might say that they are a gay Christian, but then they say, oh, gay marriage is right. So they just say, I'm a gay celibate Christian, which is not a biblical category. First, don't identify by your dead man. I don't identify as a, mm-hmm. as gay because that's my dead man. Mm-hmm. That's dead. Don't resuscitate your dead man or your flesh. Um, second, I'm not celibate. I'm holy. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm chaste. Chastity is just, I'm, I'm pure. I'm not giving a lifelong vow. And so I think that's important for us kind of to have that understanding um, of, you know, of, of that, uh, you know, what singleness is. And so I just use the word singleness as opposed to celibacy. Mm-hmm. I use the word chastity though, as well. Is, and I'm sorry, I don't yeah, want, go ahead. Is the no, difference between, I'm just thinking of this as, as I'm listening to you, is the difference between chastity and celibacy, you know, celibacy is in essence, it's sort of the abstention of some sort of activity. So if I'm celibate, I'm not doing something. Whereas chastity, at least the way it's hitting me right now is that it's much more holistic in that. And it's positive. Yes. It's more what I'm going to do. Yes. Uh, You know, celibacy is I'm not going to do. Abstinence is what I'm not going to do. But also uh, celibacy has now come to mean like this chosen lifelong vocation, like the priests, mm. the Roman Catholic priests. They're a celibate, not just for a period. Like right mm. now, I'm, I see this as a period um, I'm open to. I mean, basically, this is what I talk about. And I say this uh, in the videos. And I actually do this um, uh, visually in the videos. I, I tell the youth, live like this with mm. your hands open. God, have your way with me. Um, if mm. it's in the future for me to marry biblically, praise the Lord. If it's to be single for a period, a longer period, maybe even for life, praise the Lord. What is most important, and this is the message of 1 Corinthians 7 that, that Paul talks about, what's most important is what were you when you were called? And what's that call when you were called to Christ? Our call to Christ is most important. That's over all things, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, Greek or, you know, or slave or free or married or single. Actually, none of that really matters. What matters most is that we are called to Christ. So understanding this concept of singleness, that singleness, you can still serve the Lord. Singleness is, should be viewed as a gift. That is a good thing, not a hyper-spiritualized spiritual gift uh, that I think Hmm. I used to think it was a spiritual gift. And then I realized, all spiritual gifts are to do something. Singleness isn't to enable me to do something that no one else can do, but singleness is just simply a gift, meaning it's something given to by God um, for our good. And hmm. in my singleness now, I can serve the Lord fully for Him in whatever situation I am in, even as a single man. Yeah, there were so many good things in your book as I was preparing for this conversation with you today. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me was you, you talked about the gift of singleness and how, you know, we've misinterpreted that, that we we have interpreted that as if you have the gift of singleness, then like you said, you're destined to be single <laughs> and celibate for life. And, and in reality, the gift of singleness, I think the way you phrased it was that it's the gift of understanding that being in that condition at that time is itself a gift. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says that it's an opportunity to to live out a undivided devotion to the Lord. That's right. You know, as a married man, as a married man with children, I have God-given 
stewardship of these relationships and I have responsibilities in my roles as a father and, uh, yeah. and a husband, as a, a grandfather. These Praise are the Lord. good things. Amen. But they also take away at times from my, my ability to just be fully available and fully uh, focused on the Lord. And that's really what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, that as single men and women, there's this opportunity um, for most people, it will be for a season, but in that yeah. season to, to really practice this undivided devotion to Jesus. Amen. Even Paul, I mean, when he was traveling all around the world, if he was married and had children to take care of, that wouldn't have been responsible for him. But because he was in the situation that he was in, he was able to do that and bless not only the church at that time, but bless us with all his travels and writings and stuff like that, because he was able to do that as a single man. One thing I really appreciate, I know, like you said, this book is a little bit, I know you're on the newer project with the Holy Sexuality Project with a series of videos, but I, I hope people will will t check out both, you know, buy the book. Mm, I'm, I'm going to have a link for it because it it is so robust. You, you know, I went into it thinking, is this a book about homosexuality? Mm. <laughs> and it's so much more than that. It, it's, it's really helping us, like I said, put all of these issues, whether it's marriage or singleness, uh, our sexuality, to put them in the larger context of God's design, God's created order, which includes the, the new covenant and what he's doing with the church. So Amen. I want to wrap up our time in this conversation because I have to say, like your book, it covered everything. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> that's probably a, a bit of an exaggeration. But one thing that um, I really appreciated is that you brought it back to the family of faith, the, the church, mm. and how that really plays a role in, in our lives as, mm. as the people of God, and, and including Amen. as single people, as married people, loneliness, relationships, and really beginning to recapture this biblical concept of the church as family. So I'd like to read another excerpt from your book, mm. and then just have you uh, talk about it a little bit as we wrap up. You write... When we look in the Old Testament, the emphasis is on marriage, family, and physical offspring. When we read the New Testament, the emphasis is on the family of God with a shift from physical offspring to spiritual offspring. Here is the radical truth on family that Jesus inaugurates through the new covenant. The people of the old covenant grew by procreation, while the people of the new covenant grow by regeneration. So in quote there, so I just, I, I want to kind of use that as a launching point and maybe I could just ask, you know, how does recapturing this emphasis of church as the family of God help us practice holy sexuality? Um, if I could also say, um, like one of the goals of my book, and I'm so glad that you caught so many of these different things that I was doing that, but I was not, um, explicit about it. It's very implicit. One of my goals for this book, I've read some other books uh, that was a, an incredible example of doing 
good theology and making it super accessible. Like there's just a few of them. Um, uh, one on singleness by Barry Danilak, but also I think there was one uh, on motherhood. I think, uh, it was, I, I, you know, just some good examples of taking a concept, but doing a theology of that, like a theology of marriage or, or motherhood or theology of singleness or whatever. And, uh, just great examples of that. And I wanted to do something like that where I was just making theology and, but, and people weren't even knowing it, like how maybe, you know, I don't know if you have a dog or a kid, maybe you like kind of sneak that pill in, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but but hopefully that, I mean, that pill should be delicious because it's theology, but I, I was sneaking that in, in a way that because theology has such a stigma around it. Um, but that's exactly the case. This book was, uh, the application of that is specifically for homosexuality, like, because that's my experience. But I, I wrote this for everyone because we all deal with sexuality. And, and so similar to you, I, I often hear stories where a mother would say, I picked up your book for mm-hmm. my gay son. Mm-hmm. I did not know that I would be challenged and encouraged in my married life with my husband. You know, this is a mother saying that. Um, and I was like, yes, you got it. Cause that was my goal to say, yes, this is kind of the applications that I'm saying is on homosexuality, but I really wanted to land all this teaching on this really good, solid foundation of rich, systematic and biblical theology. Um, so yeah, the, the, the church, the reason why I kind of ended on that is because I found for the past two, three decades, a lot of the other approaches that kind of failed, like that focus on heterosexuality as the main goal, kind of focusing more on a therapeutic approach that really just psychologized sin, that made it that this root problem was absentee father, dominant mother, abuse, you know, whatever. And so that then the response was support groups, not the church, mm-hmm. but support groups. And so that essentially ended up pulling people out of the church into these support groups and then... The support group almost became an idol, unfortunately. So I saw an unhealthiness in that. And I saw a lot of speakers like myself where um, we kind of treat it like, hey, I'm the expert, you know, listen to me or or even... uh, parachurch organizations that end up being more para than church, not supportive of the church, but they're basically do, trying to do the job of the church, steal the job away from the church. So like, I'm an expert, you have your problem, people send them to me, send them to my group, send them to my website, you know, stuff like that. I don't want people to do that. Hmm. I'm our, our ministry, my mom and I, and before it was my dad and I was to point people to Christ and the body of Christ. That's the answer. So that was very intentional of me to actually point to Christ in the body of Christ, kind of there at the end, um, and to show that we're pointing people um, uh, to the to the institution that God has ordained to help us. Why, how is that different than you know, a group of friends who are Christian. Uh, Cause I get this a lot from uh, millennials like, Oh, I got my friends. I don't need church. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I got my friends. The problem with you and your friends is that you're not the church. You're members of the church, hopefully. Um, but you are all the same. You're, you're all very, very similar to each other. So in other words, you're a bunch of right hands or a bunch of left mm-hmm. ears or, you know, you're a bunch of left knees or whatever it is. You're all the same. We, we need the whole body. You, you need a shoulder. You need fingers. You need toes. You need uh, legs. You know, it, we need it all. And when we try to kind of then isolate into friendships 
people that are all similar to each other. This is why spiritual friendship is not the answer. It's actually the opposite of the answer. What we need is spiritual family. What is spiritual family? The body of Christ. Mm-hmm. We And that has a head, which is Christ. We have under shepherds, which are our pastors and elders that are guiding us in truth. And they will speak into your life and they will discipline you if necessary. And hopefully in very biblical, redemptive, restorative ways. But friends don't do that. Friends don't preach to each other. Mm-hmm. Friends don't admit minister to the, the elements of, uh, you know, the ordinances or the elements of communion, et cetera. Um, uh, friends aren't going to, you know, yeah, all these things that are, are very important, um, in the life of the church. So I think that's important because when we are in that diversity, we have different people, not all people that are, that are the same, that have the same sin struggles, et cetera. I think that's the last thing we need is to get people together with the sins, same sin struggles. What we need is Christ, more of Christ and more of the body of Christ. I really, I really appreciate how you, how the Lord led you to write, uh, led you to write this book. Um, in a recent podcast, we talked about, we were talking about the gospel and we talked about how so often we can have an almost, but not quite gospel, mm. which is, you know, we've got a lot of the right ingredients, um, but it isn't quite what we see in the scriptures. And I think, uh, your book does a great job of trying to bring together these, these distinct, but interrelated, um, truths. And, and I would mm. also just say practices, um, whether it's sexuality and and really dialing in what what does what does biblical sexuality look like what does holy sexuality look like or hmm. the ideas of marriage and singleness and and like you said have a robust theology of these things and these callings hmm. that that God has us in but then all of it really integrated into this community of faith that God has has called us and made us part of which is the church we need all of that if we're actually going to live this life of faith that, yes. that God is calling us to. And if we're gonna, if we're gonna have clarity and faithfulness around the aspects of sexuality, you know, the, this is um, this is only one part of our life as followers mm-hmm. of Jesus. But we do live in a time and in a culture where it is a dominant factor, or it's it's something that's you know being pushed in front of us over and over and over. If we're gonna walk faithfully in this area, then then we need to have all of that, you know, in view and, and then be living it out so that you could be a single person who had come out of a homosexual background and have a meaningful, full life. Like you said, that, that Jesus was fully human there. He, he wasn't, mm. he wasn't any less human because he was a single man. Mm. Uh, and in the same way, um, you know, this, when we get, called and placed into the body of Christ, we have everything that God has called us to. We have the opportunity to be a part of everything that God has called us to. There's, there's nothing lacking. There's nothing missing. Um, Mm -hmm. and the idea of, of becoming part of the family business and sharing the faith and making disciples as what the Lord has called us to, whether we are married or single, that this, this is part of this, this fullness of life that he's called us to. Mm. Amen. Yeah. That's, that, that's the beauty of, of what, um, 
of of what God has called us to that there's just so much greater and and you know what what you said of kind of the almost but not right um it, you'll love this quote Andrew it's actually my favorite quote outside the bible and it's from Charles Spurgeon where Charles Spurgeon says discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right I love that quote because it hits the nail on the head. Like, I mean, you know, Andrew, you, you had kids. A five-year-old should be able to know the difference between right and wrong, right? That's not discernment. Right. But discernment is really then it takes it, it takes a lot of wisdom to know mm. the difference between right and almost right. And unfortunately, there's a lot of almost right out there, but it's just a little fraction off. And, and this is in my video series. I actually have a whole, I, I tell the story of, um, I can't remember what flight it was, flight 777 or something like that. It was a Korean Airlines. I don't know if you remember this. I think it was in the 70s or 60s, um, maybe in the 70s. So I think, because I think it was after I was already born. Um, I should know this because I told the story, but it was uh, during the Cold War and uh, the Korean Airlines, it was flying toward Korea, but they were off by a few um, uh, a few percentage of right. they're just a little off, hmm. and you know where they flew over, Russia, hmm. and they were shot down. Ah. Everyone on that plane died. When you're off just by a little bit, and you could have all good intentions, hmm. and you could be saying a lot of good things. I mean, look at Satan. Did he not just quote pure scripture? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, every we could almost say. I mean, he's quoting scripture. He's right. Hmm. It's just that 5% that's going to land off Christ. So it's so key um, that we really, really get this right and help, you know. So yes, the, you know, this book um, definitely will, you know, we have the video series, but that I just, I just made that very, very accessible. I had to kind of weed some stuff out to make it accessible for youth. But yes, as your watchers and listeners, you know, if you really want to kind of take a really um, a thorough look at a theology of sexuality, uh, yeah, it, it's it's in my book. And um, it's it's not as much of a page turner as Out of Our Country, which is kind of my story. Um, I, I, you know, I, I hope that people would kind of read a chapter and be like, oh, I need to kind of process that again and kind of go back. It's not kind of just a real quick right. thing to go through, but it really, um, I hope that as people read it, it would actually challenge themselves. Uh, they would be challenged themselves um, through God's truth and through God's word and be encouraged as well uh, through the beauty of the goodness of what God has created uh, and how God created us and how they are living. Like every person that's watching right now, you right now are either single or you're married. So this is for you in essence. And, um, and every one of us were called to holiness, uh, which is the beauty of this term, holy sexuality, which is why I wrote this. Um, but also I couldn't finish with the, and the gospel part, because if we don't mm -hmm. have that, you know, there's just no hope. There's no power. Right. This, uh, the gospel needs to kind of, uh, really infuse everything that we are. Justin Taylor, he's, uh, well-known, um, very involved in kind of the gospel coalition. And he's the publisher for a uh, vice president for uh, crossway. Um, I had lunch with him like almost 20 years ago, uh, when I was first starting out. And I remember one thing that he mm -hmm. said to me make everything about the gospel. Uh, he said, keep the gospel central. 
Mm. And at that time, I was like, I, I didn't really fully understand. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I just thought thought of gospel just as like just evangelism. And as I studied more, and I was like, the gospel infuses everything. The gospel is not just about salvation. It's about sanctification. It's about how we daily live. It's our repent. I mean, it's everything infuses that. So that was my hope. And, and I hope that people are, are challenged and encouraged by the book and the video series. Well, I think that that was definitely true of the book. I need to check out the video series. I'll definitely be picking that up. I do still have a 17-year-old and would love to go through it with him. I think that's when we talk about almost but not quite just what you shared there at the end about letting the gospel and the person of Christ infuse all of these different aspects of our life is how we we get all the way there, that we don't get off by that five degrees like you shared. So thank you so much for your work, Christopher. And I appreciate you coming on today and sharing with us. I know that if folks are still listening at this point, um, they're going to pick up the book and check out the video series. And it's, it's going to continue to, to bless people and be, and be a real help for God's people. Amen. Thanks for having me on. 